0: This is episode number 549 with Lauren Zhu, software engineer at Glean. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, Let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. We are fortunate today to be joined by the cool, fun, and brilliant Lauren Zhu. Lauren is a machine learning engineer at Glean, a Silicon Valley based natural language understanding and search company that has raised $55 million in capital from big name venture capital firms like Kleiner Perkins and Lightspeed. Prior to Glean, she worked as a machine learning intern at both Apple and the autonomous vehicle subsidiary of Ford Motor Company, as a software engineering intern at Qualcomm, and as an AI researcher at the prestigious University of Edinburgh. She holds both bachelor's and master's degrees in computer science from Stanford. And while at Stanford, she served as a teaching assistant a remarkable five times for some of Stanford's most renowned machine learning courses, such as Decision Making Under Uncertainty and Natural Language Processing with Deep Learning. In this episode, Lauren details what it's like to study computer science and machine learning at Stanford, one of the most sought-after universities on the planet to pursue computer science and machine learning. She tells us about her research on zero-shot multilingual neural machine translation. She tells us why you should use principal component analysis to choose your job, the software tools she uses day-to-day at Glean to engineer natural language processing machine learning models into massive-scale production systems, and her surprisingly pleasant secret to both productivity and success. There are parts of this episode that will appeal especially to practicing data scientists, but... Much of the conversation will be of interest to anyone who enjoys a relaxed, laugh-filled conversation on AI, especially if you're keen to understand the state of the art in applying machine learning to natural language problems. All right, you ready for this awesome episode? Let's go. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Where in the world are you?
1: I am in San Francisco, also known as San Francisco.
0: <laughs> People say that. No, <laughs> no, it's just a song. Oh, <laughs> ah. um, so I guess you do a lot of clubbing. That's uh, that's what you're out there in San Francisco for.
1: <laughs> Not in the pandemic, but
0: <laughs> no, otherwise, I maybe. Know. I bet that really Don't worry put about a, it. I must have put a big damper on your last uh, chunk of time in school.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, I don't want to think about it, but uh, <laughs> no. Unlocking some memories there that I tried to block out of my mind, but uh, <laughs> senior year, yeah.
0: well Got a I think good so. chunk of that cut out, but it's okay. Yeah. It's even getting long. better now. San Francisco must be basically completely up and running now.
1: I think so, but I haven't visited the bars and clubs, so I wouldn't know.
0: Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> All right. Not even restaurants? You haven't been doing that? I have advantage of restaurants. That? Yeah. There you go. All right. Yeah. So that's nice. And not everyone in the world has that. I just came from uh, Ontario. I was there over the holidays, over the Christmas holidays with my family. And while I was there, the entire province of Ontario, millions of people went into a hard lockdown. No gyms, no restaurants. It was 2020 all over again. Oh no. Yeah, in 2022. So I'm sure there's other places like that around the world. And uh, so they're jealous of your ability to go to restaurants, Lauren. <laughs> uh Someday soon for the rest of you.
1: That's their fault for not learning cooking. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I had to throw that
0: Did you learn a lot of uh, cooking through the pandemic or you had it beforehand?
1: Well, I definitely did. In our lockdown, I had no choice but to fend for myself and cook my groceries. I did do that a lot, yeah.
0: All right. Well, I don't know you for your cooking prowess, though I'm sure it is no doubt exquisite. Um, I know you because... Uh, It is this interesting twist (laughs) uh, over the internet. So back in episode number 530, I did a 5-Minute Friday episode on 10 AI thought leaders to follow. And one of my AI thought leaders was Professor Christopher Manning of Stanford University. And uh, he responded to the tweets as well as to the LinkedIn posts that I made about that episode when it came out. And I got really excited because I have been a huge fan of his since 2017. So I used to run, pre-pandemic, a deep learning study group in New York. We met regularly and we studied different materials. Sometimes it was textbooks, sometimes it was uh, course videos. And at that time, there were new uh, videos from Christopher Manning's Natural Language Processing with Deep Learning course, available all of it on YouTube for free. And so we studied that for uh, several weeks uh, for this deep learning study group. So I knew who he was, I love his lecture style. I think he's so funny. And so I got super excited and I was like, well, he just responded to my tweet and my LinkedIn post, maybe I can get him on the show. And so I have emailed him and he he responded in uh, affirmatively. So I think uh, at some point this year we will have Christopher Manning on the show. But so I was doing research on him and I came across you as a TA in his course in 2021. And I loved, everything about your background, as the audience is going to see in this episode. It's, yeah, super interesting. I think you're gonna be very inspiring for a lot of listeners, and people are also going to learn a ton from you. I think I'm gonna learn some from from you in this episode. So uh, when you were TAing his course, you were doing a master's in computer science at Stanford University. And that course, as I already mentioned, was called Natural Language Processing with Deep Learning you were a course assistant. So what's that like? Is it as wonderful working with Christopher Manning in person as it seems like over YouTube?
1: (laughs) I'd like to tell you it's actually even better. (laughs) uh, He's he's wonderful. I mean, obviously very well known, has put out a lot of really incredible work, fundamental to NLP as we see it today. And yeah, getting to work with him is awesome. And the the students in the course are also really amazing. So it, it it was a great experience.
0: I'm so jealous. So tell us about kind of the course content. Uh, I, I could base it from my, from my notes from the deep learning study group in 2017, but I'm sure you could do a better job having more recently uh, been a course assistant on it.
1: Yeah, totally. So in the course, we, we have 10 weeks to go over a lot of stuff because the mm-hmm. Stanford quarter system is pretty brutal there, but um, you know we start with kind of like ground up fundamentals, and then we get into more like machine learning type things. And so mm. we start with you know like word vectors, word representations. Yep. Um, and then we kind of cover backprop and neural networks and and how those work. And then we cover like kind of the history of NLP and deep learning too. We start with RNNs, which are recurrent neural networks, Um, and then we get into, you know, like transformers, more modern day things, different applications Mm -hmm. of NLP and deep learning. We have machine translation, we have question answering, natural language generation, a lot of really cool stuff. And we also talk about the big models of today, you know, BERT, GPT, etc. And then we cap it off with a project where students get to work on whatever they want. Um, and that's really cool to see what they, what they produce.
0: Nice, that sounds incredible. And if my memory serves, and I'm gonna put this in the show notes if I can find it, while these lectures are no longer available uh, on YouTube. So I mean, the historical ones are. So the 2017 ones that I studied back then, pre transformers uh, mm. that, that wasn't a term. <laughs> uh, Well, I guess it was a term, but uh, mostly for describing cars that turn into robot people. Um, (laughs) And and so those lectures are still available online, but for the latest stuff, uh, I believe you now have to pay, but I think it's a small amount. And so I'll I'll dig that up and I will include it in uh, the show notes if I can find it. So everybody, I think, who's listening to this should be able to find that and follow along with all of the course materials that you just mentioned, which sounds amazing. Uh, Word vectors, obviously hugely powerful, enormous wide range of applications today. uh, Recurrent neural networks, transformers, uh, which are deep learning techniques for handling uh, natural language information and building models with it. And then getting into specific applications like the ones you mentioned could be really the cutting edge of natural language processing today. Machine translation, question answering systems, natural language generation, And uh, yeah, of course, these um, state-of-the-art today uh, architectures like BERT and GPT-3 are super cool to learn about. So sounds like an amazing course. But it isn't the only course that you at Stanford. So you were also a course assistant for From Languages to Information. So uh, from my understanding, it sounds like that could be kind of like a precursor to this NLP with Deep Learning course.
1: That is totally correct, and the numbers line up that way too. So, from language <laughs> to information is one, two, four, and then NLP and deep learning is two, two, four. So it's really beautiful there. Uh, yeah, I I took this course before I took the other course as well, um, and I I loved both so much I ended up TAing both of them. Yeah. So in this course, we talk about things that are a good intro to NLP, really. So. You know what is edit distance? What is text processing? Language modeling? You know models like Naive Bayes. And then we dive in more to information retrieval. Um, and then there's a little segment on neural networks again. And then it gets more interesting at the end too with different applications. So we have chatbots, you know, recommendation systems, and those kinds of things.
0: Um, Super cool. That yeah. sounds like one I need to take. Having already intensively studied Christopher Manning's CS224 and uh, the, the NLP with deep learning course that you talked about. And actually a lot of that content is in. So my book, Deep Learning Illustrated, the NLP content in there is heavily influenced by his CS224. So I'm already like pretty familiar with that. I'd love to refresh and get up to date on stuff like the Transformers. I just hear about the latest that's going on in there. But this course, a lot of the topics that you're mentioning, I feel like I have a, enough of a working understanding of them that I can muddle my way through it but I'd love to understand it more deeply. And so I I really, I'd love to study this CS124 yeah. from languages to information. That sounds awesome. All right, but that's not it. <laughs> You've taught <still> other courses as well. So you're also a course assistant for Hacking the Coronavirus, which sounds like probably a new course.
1: Yeah, that definitely was not a thing in 2019. It uh, was spurred up uh, kind of immediately as it happened, as the pandemic started. And we just sort of gathered together a bunch of students that wanted to make an impact and try to help people go through the pandemic. Um, We had, you know, all different kinds of projects, really. We had people working on deep learning for trying to get the right protein folds for, you know, vaccines and coronavirus, like the actual virus. And that was really cool. We had people working on grocery delivery kinds of things uh huge variety um dashboards for you know numbers it was really cool to see the diversity in what people came up with
0: that is really cool and you are also so <laughs> I, I don't even know how you had time cuz the masters is what it's 2 years long
1: so it, it it kind of varies um it's supposed to be 2 years long but we do this thing if you if you do your undergrad there You can do what's called a co-term. You can do a fifth year master's basically. So you can kind of finish it up in one year. So it's a really good deal.
0: But you did it in two. I did it in one. You did it in one. And (laughs) in that time, how did you, you TA'd, uh, because I hadn't even gotten to the last one. So you TA'd three, (laughs) you TA'd four different classes. We've only covered three of them so far. And one of them you did twice. You did that in a year?
1: Yeah, it was, uh, I had a little overlap with my senior year. So uh, yeah, cheating a little bit. So I started TAing in my senior year. I got too excited. I just, I wanted to teach.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's incredible. Okay, so uh, we've covered three of the four courses that you teach already. So NLP with deep learning, you did from languages to information twice, you did hacking the coronavirus and you were the head TA, (laughs) which I assume you must get like a really special, like, I don't know, outfit or something for that. (laughs) I get to wear a special hat. (laughs) That's not true, is it? No, no, no. I wish. Many thanks to the Master of Data Science program at the University of California, Irvine, for sponsoring today's episode. The UC Irvine Master of Data Science program blends statistics and computer science principles with partners from industry to empower students to innovate in the field of data science. Located on the tech coast of Southern California, students of the program will enjoy a powerhouse ecosystem where over a third of Fortune 500 companies are located. Take a giant leap in your data science career through the UC Irvine Master of Data Science program. To learn more, head to superdatascience.com UCI. That's superdatascience.com UCI. Check it out. Um, but you're a head TA of decision-making under uncertainty. So yeah, what's the difference between being a head TA and a regular course assistant? And then tell us about that particular course.
1: Totally. So being head TA means you get a boss around all the other TAs. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> Mark faster.
1: <laughs> I'm just kidding. You know, it's great. Yeah. So as a head TA of that class, it was really about making sure things ran smoothly and that, you know put out all the small fires that would always happen when running a course that has hundreds and hundreds of students. So right. that was a large part of it. Um, but the professor, Michael Kokenderfer, he is the boss, the expert. He knows all about the material and making sure, you know, students are understanding everything. I'm kind of like his, his sidekick.
0: Sweet. Yeah. And then so I guess that's some kind of probability theory course in a way or?
1: Yeah, so the course is about, I guess, taking a, a computational perspective on how to build decision making systems. Mm-hmm. So, a great example of that is autonomous systems like robotics, uh, autonomous vehicles, that kinds of thing. Uh, so, there's like Bayesian networks, dynamic programming, uh, reinforcement learning, Markov decision processes, just to name a few. Wow. Um, yeah. Really cool oh, applications there.
0: I want to go back to school.
1: <laughs>
0: Sounds awesome. Um, so clearly you had an outstanding master's. What was the rest of, in addition to uh, TAing a total of five courses in a little over a year, what else what else is it like doing a masters in computer science? I mean, we won't talk about <laughs> the time under lockdown. Um, but other than that, I mean, what's it like? What's it like studying at Stanford? Is it fun? Is it is it interesting? Is it hard? I think it's I think you nailed it. I think it's all those <laughs> things. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, the I mean, the the professors here are amazing the the students that you get to work with like when you work on a group project everyone here is so passionate about what they study and it makes it all really fun and one thing that i also really love about stanford is that you know they encourage you to explore all different kinds of things so even if you study computer science in undergrad you know you have so many opportunities to pursue other interests as well things that might not even be related and so you kind of take with you all these different life skills and things that excite you and you kind of use that in your life. You use that in your job, you use that in whatever. And that's probably my favorite thing.
0: So cool. Um, and that wasn't your only degree at Stanford. You also <laughs> did a bachelor's in computer science. You kind of alluded to this because you totally. mentioned how if you do a bachelor's, is that in all programs or is that something computer science specific where you can kind of, you can roll it right into an extra master's year? I think
1: it's, it's a lot of the programs. I think what uh, what we do is we have different bachelors and master's degrees available, but for the most part, there is that fifth-year option.
0: Yeah. Cool. I like that a lot. That is something that I really liked about Oxford University, where I did my PhD. They have a similar kind of thing where a lot of the bachelor's programs, especially if they're in science or engineering, you can do a fourth year that... Uh, So in England, undergrads are three years, not four. And then so the fourth year ends up being this master's year and you get to do more project based stuff. You get to get really deep into the research on something. I think that that's such a a cool thing. And it would make sense to me that they have more and more of those all over the place. So in your bachelor's, did you always know that you wanted to do that extra master's?
1: I would say yes. Um, I just I loved everything that I was learning. I feel like, you know, I'm a lifelong learner and if I can be in school forever, I would consider that. (laughs) It was, it's just, I needed to take more time to take more classes and explore it. Also have the chance to TA as well.
0: Nice. And yeah, in addition to TAing in your master's and I guess the end of your bachelor's there, you did tons of extracurricular stuff. You were on the Stanford jump rope team. Oh my gosh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my favorite.
0: (laughs) Um, you were co-president of women in computer science. That sounds like it had a fair bit of responsibility and you also do a fair bit of things on the side. I can see from your website, you are a wonderful singer and guitar player. Um, yeah, so you clearly have a lot of side hobbies and I think we'll get to that later. Uh, as, as it's kind of paradoxically part of your, um, productivity technique is to have kind <laughs> of extra things on the side. but um. Yeah. I don't know if there's anything in particular you want to to talk about there, but maybe the co-presidency of women in computer science, you know, what is that? How is it helpful for um, women at uh, Stanford?
1: Yeah. Uh, universities are, are 50-50 uh, for the gender split. Mm-hmm. Um, but in engineering, often it's not the case. And so mm-hmm. there's always a need to you know, empower minority groups and not just women, but all different kinds of minority groups. And that's something that I was really passionate about for sure. Um, and, you know, trying to take that to, to industry and to other parts of my life
0: as well. Nice. So I love that idea. How practically do we do it? How do we empower minority groups?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, there's a lot of different things. It's, it's the network, it's the support group, You know, providing opportunities, providing different ways to access things out there, really. Awareness, all different kinds of things.
0: Nice. I love it. Um, So (laughs) in addition to all of those things that you did at Stanford in a way, you also, when you had your summers off, you made enormously good use of them. So you were a software engineering intern at Qualcomm. You were an AI researcher at the University of Edinburgh. You were a machine learning intern at a place called Greenfield Labs, which, if people haven't heard of Greenfield Labs, it is a um, it's a subsidiary of Ford Motor Company working on autonomous vehicles. And you were also a machine learning intern at how do you pronounce that? Apple. Oh oh, Apple. <laughs> right right right. <laughs> I've heard of them. Um, That's how you pronounce so, their
1: stock ticker. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um so clearly you have a ton of experience in really interesting roles at top companies and universities all over the world and we haven't even talked about that you're now a software engineer at Glean which is a really cool venture capital backed startup in Silicon Valley so I'd love to hear one or two interesting use cases from the work experience you already have in particular Um, I spent time during my PhD at the University of Edinburgh doing uh, AI research. So um, uh, while I was at Oxford, I collaborated with researchers there. And while this might not be something that's super well known, but the University of Edinburgh is one of the top AI programs in the world and has been for decades. So uh, I'd love to hear about the work that you were doing there.
1: Yeah, that was a really fun experience, not just because it was in Scotland and the sun set at 10 p.m. every day.
0: <laughs> in the, obviously, you were there in the summer.
1: I was there in the summer.
0: <laughs> oh, that was great. Uh, yeah, that is very lucky. Because <laughs> if you're there in the winter, it's setting at like two every day.
1: Oh, yeah. And raining every day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: but um, I would go hiking at night, which gave me energy to do some really cool research during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked with. Professor Rico Sandrich, and we worked on zero shot. Oh, sorry, this is a mouthful. Zero shot <laughs> multilingual neural machine translation.
0: Did nice. I say that you right? Yeah, I said that right. Yeah, you nailed it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so if we we kind of take that apart, um, machine translation is like Google Translate. It's you know one language to another. Neural machine translation is that, but with neural networks. <laughs> Multilingual machine, oh shoot, I messed it up. Multilingual neural machine translation is NMT, you know, the other part, but with multiple languages, meaning you have one model that does all different directions of machine translation. So, you know, English to French, German to Chinese, whatever, etc.
0: How many different languages can one model do? It can do...
1: As many as it wants, with as much data that is provided
0: <laughs> oh, okay wow yeah,
1: and then we have the last one, zero shot, which means you can translate from one language to another without any supervised data from that first language to the second language Wow uh so Crazy. it's it's very hard um it's it's definitely a task <laughs> that, <laughs> that is sorry. uh it's being worked on actively. But the general technique uh, at the time was to basically take whatever data you had before with the language pairs that you had. Let's say you have English to French. Um, let's say you also have French to German. Um, if you train this model with these two language pairs, you want it to actually translate all the way from English to German directly. Um, and Actually, magically, all you have to do is provide some kind of token saying what language you start with, what language you want. And the model magically knows it's just gonna do that. Um, And secretly behind the scenes, oh yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah, so you have, let me just repeat back that I'm making sure I understand this. So if you have an English to French translation, some kind of English to French translation data set, I guess, and then a French to German translation, yeah, You could, with this multilingual model, go straight from one end to the other, yes. avoiding French entirely in the middle. So it goes straight from English to German.
1: Yeah, that's well. exactly correct. Um, and what's happening behind the scenes is the model is learning this universal embedding, this universal interpretation of language. And so if you know how to translate out of English into French, you kind of know, if you understand French, you also understand this like universal concept of language. So then you, know, you put German at the other end, you kind of just take the whole French part out of it and translate from English, to some universal understanding and then into German.
0: Wow. And so that is,
1: it is a very cool and beautiful thing.
0: Ah, so there's this, there's this universal understanding of the concepts in the middle. So a uh, uh, high dimensional embedded representation exactly. of meaning. Oh, cool! Yeah. And then, so that's how it works theoretically with any languages. You just take some uh, input language, you turn it into the universal uh, into the universal representation, and then you can spit it out into whatever target language you want.
1: Yeah, exactly. Easy. What's, what's really <laughs> what's really cool about this is it helps a lot for what we say low resource languages. You know, languages that don't have a lot of training data. Right. So let's say you only have English to Alien language. But if you want to translate German to alien language, you know, there's no way to do that with a regular model. You kind of need this multilingual model for that.
0: Cool. Yeah. All right. Man, I can't wait till the future when we need to be speaking alien <laughs> languages. How far <laughs> off are we from that? I uh, uh, can't tell you. I loved your explanation of zero shot multilingual neural machine translation. And I love the way that you worked your way backwards through that de- definition from machine translation to neural machine translation, to multilingual NMT, to zero-shot multilingual NMT. It was very easy for me to follow that way. It was a clever way to do it. Thank you. All right. So then how about more recently? You've been at Glean since the summer of 2021, full-time as a software engineer. So what are you up to over there?
1: This company is great. This, This product that we're building is something that i realized that i needed for a long time. So what we're doing is building a search for your work. And you know, as a listener, you probably maybe have encountered this, but you know, you're trying to work on something, you don't know anything about it, you don't know if it's been updated, who's been touching it, you know, what it relates to, you want to find all the tickets about it. Um, with Glean you can just search and find all the results within your company for all the data sources that you use, like Google Drive, Slack, GitHub, Jira, whatever. Um, and wow. it's, it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard problem. And there's a lot of you know ML and natural language understanding that goes into that as well. And that's, that's what my team works on in search intelligence. And so we're, we're doing the ML and NLP side of things.
0: Super cool, so the way that you describe that there, it kind of sounds like you're searching through documents mostly, but yeah, could this also work maybe in the future through your data sets, like as a data science researcher, you could use some future glean tool to just find the right data across a whole bunch of different databases or something like that?
1: yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting use case, and you know we're we're definitely starting from. The ground up with like documents but you know as we grow we're going to be tackling all different kinds of aspects of search and understanding
0: all cool. struggling with broken pipelines stale dashboards missing data you're not alone look no further than monte carlo the leading end-to-end data observability platform in the same way that new relic and datadog ensure reliable software and keep application downtime at bay Monte Carlo solves the costly problem of data downtime. As detailed in episode number 499 with the firm's brilliant CEO, Bar Moses, Monte Carlo monitors and alerts for data issues across your data warehouses, lakes, ETL, and business intelligence, reducing data incidents by 90% or more. Start trusting your data with Monte Carlo today. Visit www.montecarlodata.com to learn more. I love that idea, and I can see how it would come in super handy. I was actually I was recently I was trying to find a document that I knew I'd created in April of last year, but I couldn't remember I use a lot of different like word processing tools um, for creating documents or slides. like I'm, I'm always jumping between different uh, applications to do it because if it's going to have a lot of math, then I want to do it in latex. But if it isn't, then I can probably make it faster in Google Slides, for example, um, or Google Docs. So I'm constantly jumping between different applications for different purposes. But then a year later, I can't remember which <laughs> one I picked. Every and then I'm time. Like, oh, well, but I must have shared it with this person. Oh, but then how did I share it with them? Did I email it to them? Did I Slack it to them? And so you just have this like this tree of possibilities. And so, yeah, it makes finding documents really hard. And then what if the title I gave it was really dumb (laughs) (laughs) relative to the content that's in it? So, yeah, I would love your tool.
1: Yeah, it's so great because then you don't have to worry about any of that anymore. You kind of just, you know, you think, you know, maybe a keyword or two words and it's not just keyword based search. It's also understanding
0: I am not surprised, given everything you've said so far, that you wouldn't be working in a company that was doing this with keywords.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so it's really fun to work on, you know, direct applications of all these cool NLP things into something that people can use every day and will use every day.
0: Nice, I love it. So what does that mean to be on the search intelligence team? You're a software engineer on it. What other kinds of roles are on that team? And then how does it interface with other parts of the company?
1: Totally. Totally. So, in search intelligence, we are the part of the brain behind how the search algorithm works. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the query understanding and you know document understanding side of things, and then we have ranking. So once you find documents, how do you actually right. rank them and in an order to the right, user? Right, right. That's also really important. Um, so search is it's a really complicated problem with all different kinds of components and focusing on the nlp is definitely what i can contribute to and there's so many so many ways to to apply things like you know named entity recognition uh spell check question answering uh document summarization you know all all these cool things that you see Mm -hmm. in in papers and things we are we're working on that
0: here yeah you're implementing it at scale so you're taking academic ideas, things that have been published in papers, and maybe somebody put a GitHub repo together that kind of shows how to do it on a demo data set, but then you've got to take these ideas, blend them all together, engineer them together, and then do it at a massive scale.
1: Yeah. That's what I'm trying to figure out how to do too. I just started. <laughs> yeah. One thing that's really interesting is, you know, you learn about these techniques and and how they work in an academic setting, and then you try to apply them in industry. And it's very different. It's oh, very yeah. different because, you know, the data is dirty, or that you have to clean exactly. the data, right? Yeah, you have yeah. to put it in some pipeline that runs at weird times, and it has to be in sync with everything else. It's,
0: mm-hmm. it's
1: definitely more challenging, but really exciting part of the fun.
0: Yeah, so I have more questions coming up for you about what day-to-day life is like for you at Glean and what kinds of tools you use and approaches you use. But just before we get there, I have a couple other questions for you. So I see that you are something called a Contrary Fellow. So what does that mean? And how does that complement what you do in your full-time job?
1: Yeah, so Contrary is actually a VC uh, based here in San Francisco. And a couple of years ago, they spun up something called the Contrary Talent Network. I don't know if it was renamed, but I think it's I think it's still that. And they kind of just gathered around a group of hundred or so people that are about my age, like college grads, who are really interested in tech and entrepreneurship. And we we have different events together, we hang out, we talk, we have we have a Slack channel where we just you know, blast whatever we're interested in all the time. And it's just a very engaging, exciting network to have to keep everyone interested and, and excited about what they do. And I, I learned so much from these people as well. It's an awesome network.
0: I love that. So if there's a listener out there who's interested in being involved in this fellowship, how do they apply?
1: Yeah, so there is a... Yeah, if you Google Country talent or contrary fellowship, it's countrycap.com. And there's a way to apply and there's an annual cycle. So it might currently be closed, but it'll it'll definitely have a new cohort in the next year.
0: Nice. Super cool. So annual cohorts makes a lot of sense. You can do onboarding all together, get to know each other. Totally. Is there a in-person component maybe in the future in a post-pandemic world?
1: Yeah, so the first cohort started, of course, in 2020 when no one was able to meet anyone. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so that was that had its challenges. But since then, we've had some in-person gatherings. Definitely, you know, if slash when, very depressing, but if slash when the pandemic gets better, <laughs> there will be more in-person things for sure.
0: That reminds me, I recently watched, so I don't think I've ever mentioned this on air, but I'm a huge South Park fan and they recently released a movie that is available only on Paramount Plus so i had to get the free Paramount Plus trial for a week just so i could watch this movie um and i did cancel it i'm very good about setting reminders to like not get sucked into the uh to the auto subscription the auto renewal um and so this movie this isn't a spoiler alert cuz you see it right at the beginning of the movie is so south park the show's been around for decades and like all cartoons They always remain the same age. Um, So they're always, I don't know, fourth year, fourth graders, fifth graders. I can't remember. But they're kids in elementary school. In the movie, the movie starts with, oh, the pandemic is finally coming to an end. And all of them are (laughs) grownups. So they're like in their 40s or 50s. um, And like the pandemic is just starting to come to an end uh and it it makes for a really fun premise for the movie um they they they're all they they did such an amazing job it to call it a movie was was totally uh merited they put a lot of effort not only into the animation but also the storyline above and beyond what they would do for an episode um in addition to just the length um and so yeah this really fun thing if you're into south park i do recommend (laughs) getting a paramount plus subscription for one week to check it out Um, (laughs) don't forget to cancel it (laughs) don't forget to cancel it exactly um so all right so i didn't expect to be talking about south park with you but um (laughs) so yeah so another thing that i wanted to ask you before we get into your uh day-to-day stuff at, at glean is i know that you wrote a blog post about how you picked your job so maybe you could let us know kind of how you ended up choosing glean from no doubt the myriad of opportunities that were available to you as somebody who had a master's in computer science or was about to have a master's in computer science from Stanford, had TA'd tons of the most well known data science, machine learning classes on the planet, and had already done internships at the likes of Apple, uh, Ford, University of Edinburgh, Qualcomm. Uh, so you must have had your pick of opportunities. And I know that you wrote a blog post that invoked data science to try to come to an answer. So uh, why, Lauren, should you run a principal component analysis to choose your job out of college?
1: This is both the nerdiest and most philosophical thing ever. But I feel like this is the best way to kind of decompose out and separate You know, all the rush and all, of, all the complicated thoughts that one may have and the terrible, terrible process of recruiting (laughs) with fundamentally like what is important. So for me, when I was going through recruitment, I, I was overwhelmed with, you know, the pandemic happening, not knowing what I wanted, all these opportunities that I could, you know, possibly go with. And in order to make actual progress in my decision making i had to run a pca i had to take (laughs) you know the hundred dimensions the hundred different factors as you could say of like one job being better than another and condense it down to like five
0: all right okay so let's take one quick step back here so totally for listeners who aren't aware pca is a technique that we can use to yeah as Lauren just said, to reduce the dimensionality of data set. So if you had, and I'm starting to think I'm starting, I was immediately staggered by the data set that you might have for this. So you start (laughs) with, so each row would be a different job opportunity. So maybe like a company name. And then you actually had a hundred columns for each row.
1: Disclaimer, uh, there's no actual PCA with numbers Uh, that was done. uh,
0: uh, this is a, uh,
1: this is a, this is a philosophical, a philosophical, PCA. <laughs> philosophical PCA. Yeah. So, you know, like if what's keeping you at night is the hundred rows, <laughs> I guess the hundred dimensions, you know, K equals 100, um, in your mind, just filter it down to top five. Um, I yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry, so listeners. Necessarily- no numbers involved.
0: Uh, I, one I, could,
1: if one wanted to, one you know, could you could totally run. You could totally do that.
0: That could actually potentially be <laughs> a great project to show all of the jobs that you're applying to. Be like, and you could explain, like, so you end up here on this first principal component, and here on the second principal component, and as you can see, that positions you favorably relative to these other firms. That's so funny,
1: yeah. But basically, you know, like you think about comp- uh, compensation, you think about the people you work with, you think about the location, you think about all these different things, really just pick like three to five things and then choose the place that meets those criteria the best.
0: Right, and so Um, you're choosing the principal components, the ones that you think explain the most variance in your happiness on the job, I guess.
1: Totally, should be about happiness. Always choose happiness. Um, Yeah, so that's what I did and it worked out for me. I ended up at Glean and I think I think I chose my principal components correctly. <laughs> it was great. Awesome. Yeah. What
0: were yours? Do you what were your 3 to 5 principal components?
1: Totally. I would say, you know, like the people was huge for me. And in the previous internships I had, I loved my teams, I loved the things that I was working on. I wanted to be around a diverse group of people sort of like-minded, passionate about, you know, the the project, the the product that they're working on. When it came to technical work, that was another huge one. Like working on NLP was really important for me. Mm-hmm. Um, NLP in industry, ML in industry. And also having autonomy over my projects. Like I'm the first new grad on my team. And so I've been pleasantly surprised at how much autonomy I've been given to work on what I do, and that's been a huge amount of fun. Um, and also just like an amazing company with work culture, mission, you know, where I'm happy to go to work every day.
0: So cool, Lorna! I'm so glad that you found it. So we've talked about Glean a little bit. You've explained what you do on the search intelligence team. And you've talked about how that interrelates with other parts of the business. What is the day-to-day like for you at Glean? What kinds of tools do you use?
1: Totally. For sure, um, as a machine learning engineer, there's a lot of different things that happen because y- you have to understand like the stack and the system. So first and foremost, I'm a software engineer, and you know, even if I'm not training models, like I'm helping to connect you know different parts of the end with different features, mm-hmm. um, you know, things that uh, relate to NLP as well and um when you have an idea getting that out into a product is a long process as well because you have to kind of create the idea think about how you would do it start sandboxing you know get numbers about how it's doing you know think of ways to make sure that it's good and then you have to thoroughly test it then you have to you know test it on we say deployments like test it on customers, right? And then, then you can mm-hmm. land it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for that, that, that requires a lot of different tools. Um, I do a lot of sandboxing in Google Colab actually. Cool. And you can, you can link up like a, a local backend. And so, you know, it's a really nice notebook way to do that. That's one of my favorite things. Um, and then, you know, for offline pipelines, we also use Apache Beam, which is similar to Spark. Mm -hmm. you know, working with big data. So proficiency in that is also really, really nice.
0: Yeah. Cool. Nice, super cool tool choices. Lauren, I love using Colab myself. So if people do online courses with me, I very frequently use Colab. I haven't before used it attached to a local backend um, as opposed to just being on the internet using Colab notebooks. That sounds super cool. It's something I'd love to try out.
1: That was my Um, first time using it too, in industry also. Oh yeah? Yeah, it's a really cool thing.
0: Yeah, it does have, so for listeners who are familiar with Jupyter Notebooks, it's similar to Jupyter Notebooks and it's based on the idea of Jupyter Notebooks. So executing code, adding in Markdown to annotate your notebooks, having plots right there in the notebook. But Colab does a really great job of uh, providing you with information about all of the variables and methods in your code just by hovering over it. And so that's something that I could imagine would be really useful about uh, using Colab. The only thing that annoys me about it, and there might be some way to customize this, is that because I've been using Jupyter Notebooks for so many years before, I got super used to all of the hotkeys. And (laughs) some of them, many of them are the same, but some of them are different, and they throw me off. And there are a few key things, and I can't now think of any off the cuff, but there are some things that I do all the time in Jupyter Notebooks that I haven't figured out. And I think that there isn't by default a collab Notebook way of doing it. And so I keep, I recurrently have this like, oh, I'm going to figure out how to customize this somehow. And so maybe this is it. If I can figure out how to have it running on a custom backend, maybe then I can also customize the hotkeys maybe. <laughs> in a way that I can't on the internet. So well, let
1: me know if you figure that out.
0: <laughs> I, I will, I, I will be letting the whole world know. Um, <laughs> And then Apache Beam, very cool way to uh, run processes over large amounts of data. Um, Not one that I've used personally, but that machine learning engineers on my team have used. And so I know that it can be a great choice in a lot of situations. Cool. So um, Lauren, I think given your breadth of expertise working with lots of different kinds of students and already working in lots of different kinds of companies in your career, what skills are most important for people to possess today, whether they're engineers or data scientists?
1: Yeah, I would say, first and foremost, keep learning always. You know, read the papers, read read about what's new and out there and, and play around with it. You know, be a good engineer, be a good data scientist. And then also an alternative answer to that is to... <laughs> you, you alluded to this earlier, but you know, paradoxical, I would say you know pursue your passion projects that might not even be related to this at all. Um, you know, for me, one example actually is um, as I just moved here to San Francisco, I don't have a lot of furniture in my house. I'm kind of going crazy about interior design, <laughs> and I love arts and I love you know I love photography and music and So now I'm just looking around for inspiration in the city for how to design my apartment. And that actually, you know, that gives me a lot of energy every day. That also helps me get out of bed every day, along with the cool things that I'm doing at work. So, you know, the more things that excite you, the better. Um, And, you know, that'll make you happy. And if you're happy you be a good data scientist. <laughs> That's my secret.
0: <laughs> I love that. You do seem really happy. You seem Thank like you. a deeply happy person. It's very enjoyable shooting this episode with you. I feel very lucky. All right. So, awesome answers to that question. And that is not one that I've had before to question like that to pursue your passion projects because this energizes you for all aspects of your life, including your work life. And if you're happier, studies show that you do think more creatively you see more possibilities than if you're stressed. So I do believe that that is a great piece of advice, Lauren. Um, So I think that also kind of covers the next question that I had for you about non-technical traits uh, that Mm. make a great engineer. (laughs) It seems like we just covered that. Yeah. Um,
1: I mean, be creative, right? Like think outside of the box and there's no way that Technology is going to keep improving algorithms, you know, methods. They're going to be the same unless people think outside of the box. And that's how, that's how stuff happens. So nice. Like, I just want to emphasize creativity everywhere. More
0: more interior design, everyone.
1: Yeah. Do that.
0: (laughs) Um, All right. And then it goes without saying that you are an extraordinarily productive person. So, you have managed to do so many different things in parallel, pursue first a Stanford bachelor's degree in computer science, then a master's in computer science. In the bachelor years, you were doing things like being co-president of Women in Computer Science and traveling all over the world. And then during your master's, you were TA of so many different classes of a total of five classes. Um, Now that you are working full-time, you're still finding time to be doing interior design um, and, and pursuing other interests, music, art. So how do you do it? What are your tricks for uh, being so productive?
1: Yeah. I would say, you know, being healthy and resting yourself. And this, this is kind of a similar theme, but, you know, having enough energy and mental space to, to learn um, because there's no way that you can learn and be productive if if you're tired or if you're stressed um, and the the hours that I work I feel are very, very productive because my head is clear and right. i'm I'm happy and I'm healthy right, yeah. yeah, that's
0: a key thing. You know you see there are some occupations out there, um, so you know working in mergers and acquisitions and investment banking is an example, or strategy consulting. Um, you know, there are these kinds of career choices where you hear about these crazy long hours, you know, you're traveling to the client somewhere else. You have to wake up at four in the morning to make your 6am flight. You land at the client city at like 8am and then your meetings till very late. And I personally, and I'm, there might be exceptions out there. But certainly for me, and I suspect for most people, a lot of those hours that you're quote unquote working, I can't imagine they're particularly uh, productive or certainly innovative. Um, I agree with you 100% that to be doing my best work, to be supporting my company as best as I can be, and probably listeners as best as I can be, I need to be getting lots of rest. Um so uh something that I've talked about in episodes before I use something called the Pomodoro technique to track um tasks that I'm working on and so yeah episode number 456 which aired in March of last year um I I talked about this Pomodoro technique and so it time boxes and I know I think you're going to talk about time boxing in a second too but it it kind of it gives these 25 minute sprints of work and then you're supposed to take 5 minute rests Sometimes I'm really in the groove and I'm like, no, I'm not taking a break. Like I'm doing another 25 minutes. Uh, But then after two 25 minutes in a row, I'm like, okay, it's probably time to like stand up and walk around. And so the very most that I can sustainably do in terms of number of Pomodoros in a day is if I can do 16 in a five day work week, I am gassed. So if you think about that, that's really, that's 25 minutes, let's call it half an hour to make the math simpler for me, (laughs) doing it (laughs) off the cuff. But so we're talking eight hours of work, five days a week of like focused, deep work, where you're not distracted by phone calls, you're not doing other things, you don't have the TV on, you are focused on that task. And no matter what I do, if, if I try to rejig my life in some way to make that 20, it is unsustainable. I cannot I will begin to have Pomodoros where I'm just like, what am I doing here? I'm just like pushing information around, or yeah, just just not, I'm just distracted. I, I can't stay on track. I certainly can't think creatively. So I agree with you a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah.
1: yeah. I, I, I mean, when I was a student, I felt the same thing. And I would, my friends, some people would work, you know, on Saturdays and Sundays. And I'm like, why don't you just work, you know, productively on the weekdays, take the weekend off, you know, partially enjoy yourself and rest well, and then kind of have the energy to, to work harder during the week. And like, I, I definitely, I am responsible for some of this too, but like on Saturdays I would try to work on during the whole day and really get nothing done. And then I would feel bad that I wasted my Saturday. So really just like making sure that you set aside time to rest and do the things that you love is so important.
0: Yeah, you're 100% right. And I, through the pandemic, I have been worse than usual. I'm always, yeah, I'm frequently trying to burn the candle at both ends, but through the pandemic I've been really bad at it and you're 100% right. I, and probably a lot of listeners out there need to be better about having space for other pursuits, other passions um, on weekends and holidays and evenings if you can make the time. And yeah, no doubt, at the times that I do create that space, I am so much more energized, productive, and creative in my workday. So a good reminder for everyone, no doubt. Okay, so Lauren, we've talked about your early career successes and how you achieve those successes, your productivity tips, um, which sound like really pleasant ones because everyone wants to have more happiness in their life. So given where you are in your career and given the incredible richness of experience that you already have with machine learning engineering. Here's a question that I love to ask. I, I don't ask it all the time, but I think you're gonna have a really interesting answer, which is thanks to constantly exponentially cheaper data storage, exponentially cheaper compute costs, way, way, way more sensors everywhere, collecting way, way, way more data, interconnectivity, you know, being able to do classes remotely, Papers being published in archive as soon as they're ready. GitHub code going up at the same time. Um, Technology advances are happening at an exponentially faster pace each year. And there's no place that we feel this more than in data science or machine learning. So given that you're really at the beginning of your career, you haven't even been working full-time for a year yet. So you have decades of career ahead of you what excites you about the future? What do you think could happen over these coming decades that will transform society?
1: Oh my gosh, there is so <laughs> much cool stuff happening now and more things that I don't even know like will be happening in the future, but like mm-hmm. if you just take a look at some of the really amazing things that are happening now, the fact that I can just, you know, speak into my Apple Watch completely normally, not like hello, my name is, but just like how I normally talk and it understands Mm -hmm. at the rate that I speak and transcribes things and can just send it to someone. Like that is really cool. Um, You know, autonomous driving that who knows if that will pan out, but there's really good progress so far. And I'm really excited to see how far that's going to go. Like Mm -hmm. all these things can only happen with a lot of data and really powerful compute. And so, you know, if you get more of that, you get more of these really cool applications, things that are just like mind blowing. And I I can't wait to integrate more of those things into my life. Like, I don't even know what they'll be. It's really, really (laughs) exciting.
0: Yeah, I agree. And very cool. Those two examples you mentioned, follow right on internship experience you have at Apple and Greenfield labs uh so very cool examples relevant examples so all right so let's fast forward all the way to the end of your career so let's say 40 <laughs> years from now when you retire what do you hope to look back on
1: if you know the uh myers briggs personality test yeah it's one of it's one of my favorite things i think it's crazy how four letters it, basically it's a it's a, person, a personality test with four different letters Um, And each letter has, I guess there's two variations, right? So there's I and E. So there's, let's quickly explain it, but I is uh, introverted, E is extroverted. Mm -hmm. Then the second slot is um, N and S. N is intuition, S is sensing. And then you have F and T, you have feeling and thinking. Then for the last slot, you have J and P, you have judging and perceiving. And the fact that you can just, Take sixteen combinations of these letters to describe a person is both really powerful. It's definitely a little bit generalistic, but it's really really cool. Um, so maybe you can guess this, but mine is a ENTP. So I'm extroverted, I'm intuitive, thinking and perceiving. And if you if you look up those letters, you'll find like a nickname for it, which is the visionary, and. I can definitely see that in myself. I might be idealistic sometimes, um, in the way that I think about things and just how I operate. Um, but, you know, looking back at the end of my career, I would love to see like turning those ideas and turning those dreams into reality and acting on all the cool things that I've conjured up in my head. So, you know, hopefully I can actually interior design my house the way that I <laughs> planned it in my head so elaborately. Um, and you know, when it comes to being an engineer, like making the impact that I dream about every day.
0: Cool, yeah. That was such an unexpected, but beautiful answer. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was like, how oh, is this going to, oh yeah. And there that it goes, help,
1: think, exactly. <laughs>
0: there it goes. Nice. Yeah. All right. So given your rich and interesting experience, do you have a book recommendation for us that might expand our minds?
1: Yeah. One book that um, it's one of my favorite books of all time. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: It's a classic. Um, I'm sure a lot of you have read it already, but if you haven't, please check it out. It's basically about like how people think and Mm -hmm. how there's two different ways of thinking. The first one is this like very fast, quick, intuitive, like you don't even have to think thinking. And then the other one is what we tie more to like academics and learning and storing memories into our brain, like the very, you know, brain intensive way of thinking Mm -hmm. and just like how we use both in our daily lives and why they're both important and how they interact. It's really, really fascinating.
0: Yeah, I absolutely love that book. I hope to reread it soon. I've only read it once, and it is densely packed with information from Daniel Kahneman, a Nobel Prize-winning economist, on uh, cognitive biases and how. Yeah, there's a lot of surprising, evidence-backed information on how you actually think relative to how you might feel you think, and while reading the book once (laughs) does not rid you of all of the biases that you're susceptible to, Uh, at least a little bit of awareness can make you uh, able to mitigate some of the most uh, pernicious biases. And yeah, I'd love to read it again to kind of brush up and uh, eliminate a few more.
1: Yeah. I think I might have to give it another read as well.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So great tip, Lauren. I highly recommend that as well. So how can people follow you or get in touch with you to, uh, you know, hear what you're up to on a, on a regular basis?
1: Yeah. Um, I'm most active on Instagram. My handle. All is, right. Yeah. At Hey Lauren, like the normal spelling
0: mm-hmm. and
1: then Z my last initials. That's H E Y L A U um, R E N Z. You can also add me on LinkedIn. Um, that's probably it. I would say. Nice.
0: Yeah. yeah. We'll include those in the show notes. Lauren, I have loved filming this episode with you today. I have learned so much as I said, I would at the beginning of the episode, it happened and yeah, I, I feel like I had a, a great energizing life experience uh, shooting this with you. No doubt lots of audience members have the same experience listening to you. And so I would love to have you back on the show again sometime.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Absolutely fun.
0: Lauren is so calm, cool, happy, and relaxed. I'm sure it was obvious that I had such a good time filming with her today. I hope you enjoyed our conversation too. I'm deeply impressed by how much Lauren has accomplished in her career already, and I loved her ability to explain deep technical concepts in such a straightforward, relatable way. In today's episode, Lauren filled us in on what it's like to study and TA some of the world's most renowned machine learning courses at Stanford. You'll be pleased to know that after filming with Lauren, I found a YouTube playlist with all of the Winter 2021 lectures for the CS 224N Natural Language Processing with Deep Learning course, so those epic lectures are indeed available for free after all. See the show notes for a link. Uh, beyond Stanford, Lauren detailed the extraordinary AI research on zero-shot multilingual neural machine translation that she carried out in Scotland. She talked about how natural language understanding enables exceptional search and rank capabilities at Glean. She talked about how the Google Colab and Apache Beam tools she uses day-to-day as a machine learning engineer bring NLP models to reality. And she let us know how paradoxically, by resting and doing less work each week, you can ultimately end up being more productive and successful. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Lauren's Instagram profile and website, and a YouTube video of her playing a ukulele on a mountainside with a dog, um, as well as my own social media profiles at www.superdatascience.com 549. That's superdatascience.com 549. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. I also encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by adding me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tagging me in a post about it. Your feedback is invaluable for helping us shape future episodes of the show. All right, thank you to Ivana, Mario, Hyman, JP, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing another exceptional episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and catch you on another round of Super Data Science very soon.